Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the most important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have helped shape where we are today. You're about to listen to a lecture entitled The Cultural Turn. It's the 12th and final talk in our podcast series, Culture Wars, Then and Now. The talks in the series were recorded at the Academy 2019, the short residential summer school that's organised by the Battle of Ideas educational charity. At the end of this podcast, you'll be able to find out further information about next year's summer school. Meantime, this episode of our Culture War series examines the cultural turn that emerged in the 1970s and its subsequent development in the decades that followed, including post-material values and the politicisation of culture today. The lecturer is Professor Frank Ferreira, sociologist at the University of Kent and the author of many books, including How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, and Populism and the European Culture Wars. Right, so I'm going to talk about the cultural turn. Uh, and I chose that title because around 1978, 1979, people began to use this, ter- this term to signify the fact that we were moving into a new kind of era. And I remember when I first came across the expression cultural turn, I really reacted against it. And one of the reasons why I reacted against it was because the type of people that liked the cultural turn were the kind of people that turned me off. Uh, and they were, the, they were the ones that actually saw a lot of positive significance in what they perceived to be a cultural turn. At the time, uh, I foolishly believed that their optimistic prognosis of the growing influence of culture was going to be relatively short-lived. I didn't quite grasp exactly what was going on. Uh, it's not that they grasped it either. It's just that I just thought that was like a momentary fashion. But I think what was also very interesting, and this is something I'm not going to go into, is that precisely at the time when this cultural turn kicks in and people talk about it, was also the time when within the social sciences in particular, but more widely, people began to talk about culture all the time. All of a sudden, individuals who used to talk about social issues began to redefine them as cultural ones. And people who in the past would have been what I would call social determinists, the, one that, the ones that said that society determines everything, all of a sudden rebranded themselves as uh, advocates of cultural determinism although cultural determinism is a much more fragmented concept uh, in, their, uh, in their eyes than the social one was, just because uh, uh, cultural determinism uh, accepts the fact that there are different types of cultures. It's always a, always a pluralized concept in the way that society wasn't, because you didn't have, don't have societies, you have a society. Whereas with the cultural determinism, it's a, it's a pluralistic, a pluralized kind of concept. So that's, that's, why, you know, that's why I think it's interesting to talk about it, because with the cultural turn, what you also have is a shift in emphasis from a countercultural moment, you know, the two decades beforehand, where you have a countercultural emphasis, which is really about uh, calling into question and contesting and uh, ultimately destroying the prevailing 
cultural values, which is what happened in the 60s and the 70s, to a moment when people begin to, to, be, to kind of engage in the task of creating a new culture, of building a new set of values. And in many respects, the, the, what, what's called the cultural turn was, was associated by, with a, in, the, in, the, in the writings of a number of people with what they called uh, was the, the post-material moment, when post-material values, and that's the way, that was the language they used, when post-material values would displace values that were materialistic beforehand. That's the way that the whole shift was explained at that time. And the principal uh, sort of, uh, the principal emphasis of this shift from uh, sort of uh, a materialistic culture to a post-materialistic culture was basically the discovery that environment and environmentally related issues were far more significant than people imagined. And indeed, a lot of people began to argue that environmentalism and the threat to the environment was the foundational issue of our times. I think that's very important to realize because today when we talk about identity politics, when we see the subsequent development of cultural politics, we overlook its origins in this moment, and we overlook the fact that precisely the same people that uh, began to become uh, interested and, and invested their emotions in environmentalism were also the same kind of people that, that were very much interested in uh, cultural identity-related matters. Now, I know you're all tired, and, and, and uh, you've been listening to a lot of uh, interesting ideas. And it may well be the case that at some point in my talk, you're going to switch off and you know, sort of think about shopping or, or something important like that. <laughs> I think if you do that, then I, it, it's useful to uh, think about my lecture. Summer, I want to kind of summarize my lecture by basically giving you a little model to think about. Uh, and if you remember that, then it's okay to forget about everything else that I say. <laughs> and that little model, the way I kind of see it, is that the cultural turn and the kind of uh, politics that emerges out of it is essentially in the business of calling into question every fixed point that existed within Western civilization. It's very much about busting the boundaries between men and women. It's about busting the boundaries between human beings and animals. It's about busting the boundaries between adults and children. It's about busting the boundaries between the private sphere and the public sphere. It's about busting the boundary between a citizen and a refugee. Busting physical boundaries and borders between nation states, as well as the symbolic ones that exist within society. That's really what it's really all about. And that's what they've been engaged in and continue to be engaged in to this particular moment in time. But of course, human beings need boundaries, right? And even if you say, even if, as you now do, and this is what the cultural um, kind of moment, uh, uh, post-material cultural term brings about, even if you say, that we don't like boundaries and we don't like borders because we like open borders or we like cross-border crossings or you say that you like 
metaphors that's got the word trans in them. You know, transnational is good, national is bad. Citizenship is bad, but transnational citizenship is good. Binaries, binary concepts such as good and bad and, you know, sort of um, moral boundaries are bad, and therefore we need a, a more trans, fluid, open uh, sort of type of uh, relationship. And you have to remember that this is the moment at which every time the, you use the word open, right, it's automatically seen as being ipso facto good. You know, open-mindedness becomes a key value to the point at which everybody in this room thinks that open, being open-minded is good in and of itself. Not asking the question, open to what, right? Because that's always an important question. Uh, so all these kind of categories, which are, are, are kind of border-busting uh, kind of, kind of uh, categories, also invite the creation of new boundaries. And what we're now seeing, and this is the point I'm trying to make, what we're now seeing, and this is what the new kind of identity politics is all about, is the creation of new boundaries, okay? So the same people that are against borders, they want to open borders, are also the same people that demand the construction of safe spaces, right? Which is a boundary as well. You basically want a, a space where nobody can enter who's gonna criticize you. The same people that want to open up this and destroy that particular boundary are also very much concerned about their personal boundaries. Right? And, and there's a lot of discussion about you know, mining, you know, about not entering people's personal boundaries. And you find that in all kinds of ways, what identity politics does is it constructs, and this is what's the original feature of, of the last uh, period, is it creates new forms of boundary maintenance. I think a very good example of that would be the idea of cultural appropriation. Because cultural appropriation is really about policing culture. It's about making distinctions. Me, as a Hindu, have a monopoly over teaching yoga, right? Because yoga is part of my culture. And if you get some white bitch in England <laughs> teaching that, that is a, an excursion upon my cultural identity. And you have similar discussions in food and hair. You know, I mean, the, the trivial way in which the policing of boundaries occurs in cultural appropriation is truly fantastic. And of course, we find that boundary creation is most prolific and most extensive in relation to language. I mean, the way in which language is not policed, the words you can use that are, that are beyond the boundary, and the words that you can use that is within the boundary, the number of expressions is just increasing all the time. In fact, it almost goes back to pre-capitalist time, to the feudal era, where you have to be really, really careful what kind of words you could get away with and what kinds of words you could use. So the point I'm trying to make is that, to put it more simply, is what we're seeing since 79 is a period of both the, the busting of symbolic boundaries, the kind of boundaries and fixed points that give meaning to life, kind of absolutely corroding and eroding them. And at the same time, and this is what identity politics is trying to do, 
is almost kind of semi-consciously creating new boundaries, new ways of settling what is appropriate, what is inappropriate. It's never good and bad, because that's too moral for these people. It's got to be appropriate and inappropriate. Um, and you know, sort of, you know, what is what is kind of acceptable forms of behavior, okay? Now, in in at the time, uh, you know, sort of when a cultural turn occurs, what you're seeing is an emphasis on culture. Uh, but the very emphasis on culture is mediated through a language and through a set of ideas that is extremely hostile to humanism. I mean, humanism. If you look at the books written on in the 1980s, 1970s, they're almost without exception, they make fun of humanism. Humanism is seen as a silly, naive idea. Humanistic impulses are seen as a, as, as a lie, almost, as a kind of cover for something else. This is the moment at which um, you kind of question materialistic capitalist society, but you do it in such a way that at the same time you also question the uh, other, the moral traditions that are, are, are linked with capitalism. So anti-religious ideals, anti-Christian ideals, anti-Western ideals. And in particular, this is the time when discussions of the Enlightenment become increasingly hostile. Now, this is when they begin to coin the phrase that those of you that studied in universities will have come across. Have you ever heard of the concept of the Enlightenment project? Uh, the very coining of the phrase, the Enlightenment project, as if somehow we had this project, you know, when in fact the Enlightenment was the accomplishment of a diverse number of individuals all pursuing very different, often contradictory ends. Right? Uh, anyways, the Enlightenment project is then seen as somehow the, the precursor of everything that is destructive and corrosive. So, you know, at its worst, the Enlightenment is seen as the Slippery, as the beginning of the slippery slope that begins with rationality and ends up in the gas chambers in Auschwitz. I mean, that's the way it's kind of generally kind of portrayed that the, you know, it basically as, as Zygmunt Bauman argues, the Holocaust could not have happened without the rationality and the science that was unleashed by this Promethean aspiration that the Enlightenment had. What's also interesting about the cultural turn, and that's something that is very rarely recognized, is that the cultural turn is also intensely psychological. In many respects, I almost, in my own mind, see it as being a, a psychological turn, where you much more self-consciously and explicitly see the importance of emotions, of psychological states, where you increasingly see problems as emanating from emotional deficits, where you basically see the social issues, things like racism, the oppression of women, uh, xenophobia, homophobia, as all markers for some kind of mental health kind of problem. It's at this stage in time that those uh, kind of ideas uh, kind of uh, gain authority. And as I mentioned and I suggested yesterday, these anti-rational and psychologistic sentiments are absolutely <coughs> bitterly hostile to the idea of autonomy. I mean, I, I, I have not yet come across a single book. I'm sure there must be, you know, there always is, 
Now, having come a single book, book written in the English language by an Anglo-American academic that celebrates the liberal idea of individual autonomy. I'm not even talking about national uh, and sovereignty, but individual autonomy. Neither of those ideals have any uh, intellectual authority left. It's always, whenever people talk about autonomy, they always preface it by the phrase, the myth of autonomy. You know, it's, a, it's just like that you have the myth of the Enlightenment, so it's the myth of autonomy. Uh, that, that, that's something that kind of comes forward. I would call this, uh, this moment when you have, on the, the, you know, on the one hand, the calling it the question of every single Western value, uh, a kind of anti-humanist cosmopolitan moment. I think what's interesting is that precisely, and this is something that you know, we need to pick up on, precisely at the moment when every value is called into question, right, you have two new values being sacralized almost kind of created in this time. The first one is the sacralization of the Holocaust. You know, for decades and decades and decades, what happened to Jewish people is totally ignored. You know, there's very little discussion of the concentration camps in the 50s. I mean, it's just a, you know, the concentration camp is just seen as like a, like a refugee camp, more or less, except that more people died than in a usual refugee camp, right? And in the 60s, they begin to talk but the first time that you have the, the use of the word Holocaust or, or, or the Shoah, what's called, called the Shoah, really kicks in in the 70s. And from the late 70s, 80s onwards, every government in, in Western Europe begins to organize these Holocaust Memorial Days. You have uh, anti-Holocaust uh, denial laws occurring. All of a sudden, Auschwitz becomes this all-purpose symbol of evil. So we have one new value being created. Uh, we have the Holocaust becoming, for the first time, a symbol of evil, which you know, sort of most Western governments can agree on. But you also need something that is good, that is the opposite of evil occurring at that time. And in the 1970s, the, the good, the wholesome, the something that we can love and like, as you would guess, becomes the environment. You know, this is the moment when the environment becomes sacralized, when suddenly, you know, sort of the environment is talked about pretty much in the way uh, that Christian people used to talk about transcendence, you know, in the, in the Middle Ages, when, when Christian people talk about the resurrection, you know, sort of that kind of almost mythical language. And certainly with the deep ecologists, it is virtually a form of political theology that they're developing in relation to the environment, to the point at which the anti-humanist trends also acquire a dehumanizing dynamic. Because as you know, with uh, environmentalism, what you have is a, a phenomenally powerful sense of misanthropy, you know, where people are talked about, human beings are talked about as this uh, parasite upon the globe, and where the population problem becomes the fact that there are, there's a population, and wouldn't it be better if you didn't have breeders, as they call them, I, I love that language, a breeder, who leave their carbon footprint behind. So you, on the one hand, you have this incredibly uh, dehumanizing uh, kind of moment. But at the same time as you dehumanize human beings, you also strip human beings of their humanity. And you do that with the invention and the, 
uh, escalation of animal rights. You know, I think that's, we tend to underestimate how important that is. Not because there's anything wrong with being nice to animals and stroking pussycats and all these things, it's perfectly all right. But when the boundary between the human and the animal becomes eroded and animals are seen as just basically, you know, sort of furry versions of human beings and there is no kind of sense of superiority or, or, or unique qualities, then you begin to run into problems. So that's really what uh, the anti-humanist cosmopolitans bring into account. And the reason why I call them cosmopolitan is because by cosmopolitan I mean uh, their love of everything that is unbounded. Right? They hate the nation, right? but their alternative to the nation is not a genuine universalism. They cannot really bring themselves to that. They just simply hate anything that is bounded anything that is community-based. They particularly hate pre-political bonds between generations, between parents and children and, and their ancestors. And what they're trying to do all the time is to strip bare those bonds that link generations together and replace them with what they see as this transnational, you know, universalistic uh, sort of uh, individual. And you get to the point where you know, sort of uh, their reality uh, loses all bounds to the point at which it becomes a caricature. So, for example, <coughs> if you look at the Italian political theorist, Agamben, who is very popular at the moment, you know, sort of, I mean, everybody's reading him. And, you know, I think the reason why they love him is because he's incomprehensible. <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, when you decipher that pretentious writing, he makes the point that uh, today, you know, the only political category that has got any meaning left is the refugee. Right? So the refugee, right, displaces the citizen because, you know, if you have a citizen, a democratic citizen, that's so exclusive, it, 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 it basically a, a British citizen, by their very existence, excludes French people or African people or Australian people. And what they're arguing is that the refugee is really the only foundation around which a new kind of democratic politics can be reconstituted. Because if only if you recognize that the refugee is like the future, the, the future creator of a new world, unless we recognize that we're going to fall back upon xenophobic and racist kind of politics. So those are the kind of ideas uh, that kind of come about. And uh, these are ideas and values that are unbounded, unmoored in the past. They're very open-minded to the point at which there is no limit to your openness. They are very fluid. And of course, they're very, very non-judgmental. Uh, and in, in a sense, what you also have is, is part and parcel of that is this reaction to the previous generations. I think uh, when you think about, we discussed this yesterday, there's a reaction to the past. I think that reaction to the past often takes on uh, a very strong uh, kind of generational dynamic. And it's a very interesting generational dynamic that's never occurred before. And the reason why it's never occurred before is because in the past, whenever generations fought one another, so if you go back to ancient Greece, we have the first example of a generational conflict uh, when Athens loses the Peloponnesian War you find that the young people that are, are rebelling as their elders are basically rebelling against their elders on the ground that they can 
defend Athens better than the elders did. Whenever you have that Russian novel, I always forget his name, who wrote about fathers and sons, and all these things, there, there's a generational conflict there, but the younger generation does not call into question in a fundamental way the, the values of their parents. They're actually saying that we're, you know, we're able to give meaning to those values in a much more uh, meaningful way than ever before. But now what you've got is something very strange, which is basically, uh, and, and it's most clearly exemplified by, uh, what, what, what's it called, extinction? What do they call them? Extinction rebellion. rebellion. Yeah, I, I, always, I always stutter when I try to explain that because it's so crazy. Whenever you, whenever you listen to those kinds of things, what they're saying, they basically, their politics is about telling us how horrible previous generations were. You know, the adults messed up things for little, is it Olga or whatever her name is, the little girl, the 16-year-old, you know, sort of, what? Greta, yeah. Little Greta, you know, becomes this, this mouthpiece for this kind of re resentment against older people. And the whole of the environmentalist politics is about the fact that um, we, you know, it's not about anything kind of constructive. It's about somehow reacting against all the mistakes that previous generations made, who simply took the earth for granted and did not put anything back in. It's a, a real kind of, uh, you know, basically it's fixing the problems of the past rather than dealing with the problems of the present. It's, it's a continuous uh, series of lectures. And of course, you know, that, that's kind of, that kind of reaction exists in, in all domains of, of human experience. The main uh, architect, the main theoretician of the cultural turn is a man called Ronald, Ronald Inglehart. I don't know if you come across him. Uh, he is one of the uh, uh, social theorists in the late 70s, early 80s. He's alive even now, who writes about the new social movements, the new ways that the so new social movements are thinking. And he's the one that talks about the fact that these new social movements are adopting post-material values. Now, why is it that people are adopting post-material values? Why is there a cultural turn? He argues, this is already in the, in the late 70s, and the versions of the argument keep reoccurring in the next 20 years. He argues that the conditions of peace, economic security, and unparalleled affluence, which were experienced by a part of the baby war boom in advanced Western societies, has led to a sizable group of privileged individuals who are able to place a high prior priority on satisfying post-material needs. In other words, what he's saying is that we now live in a very secure environment, and this generation of environmentalists, this new generation of young people, uh, because they're economically relatively, uh, relatively uh, sort of secure, uh, are, only, are no longer interested in material survival or in material insecurity, they're interested in self-expression. They're interested in sexual equality. They're interested in sexual experimentation. They're interested in self-actualization. Uh, and I think what, they, what it's really saying is that what you have is a situation where this secure, wealthy generation develops cultural politics, post-material politics, in a way that's quite different than before. Uh, in contrast to the rest of society, the poor people, the working class people, 
somebody that Hillary Clinton will later on call deplorables, those kinds of people who are still interested in bread and butter economic issues. So he's locating this difference between two types of people. Now, when Inglehart is writing, he is very is morally neutral in the way he describes the difference between people that today we call aware, aware, and those people who are unaware of anything. You know, I mean, just completely you know, kind of reeking with prejudice and, and xenophobia, who are of the lower order. He is morally neutral because he phrases this thing in terms of economic security. That's the basis for that. However, as time goes on, you know, sort of with the passing of time, this moral neutrality between these two kinds of people gives way to more than a hint of moral condemnation. So more recently, when you're discussing the irrational populists, the Brexit types, and you know, people who vote the wrong kind of a way, uh, when you're describing them, then you begin to bring in a, a kind of a, a language of morality. So for example, very recently, Pippa Norris and Ronald Inglehart wrote a book, uh, which I think came out earlier, uh, earlier this year. And basically, they explain uh, Brexit and explain the rise of populism in Europe and the election of Trump in America. Because they all put them all together. It's all the same thing. In their eyes, they see that as a backlash. You know, uh, poor people, uneducated, xenophobic people are backlashing against these very sensitive post-materialist types, you know, who are not interested any longer in, in kind of grubby materialistic kind of values. And basically the way they write, what they really argue is that authoritarian populism, which is some people like me, uh, is the consequence of what we call long-term generational shift in values. They say, as younger generations have become richer, more educated, and more secure, they've adopted post-materialist values that emphasize secularism, personal autonomy, diversity at the experience of religiosity, and uh, at the expense of traditional family structures and conformity. And they then go on and say the older generations, again, people like me, you know, have become alienated. I don't know why I've become alienated, but you know, I have become alienated. Effectively, uh, in their words, becoming strangers in their own land. I think that's an expression of their hope rather than the reality. And they basically say, while well, the traditionalists are now numerically the smaller group, in other words, old cargers like me are the smaller group, they vote in greater numbers and they're politically active. Right? So that's, that's the explanation. So the reason why populism occurs is because you still have the remnants of these older generations you know, are still steeped in, you know, kind of hundreds of years of prejudice, and they vote in larger numbers. That's the basic argument that's being uh, sort of put forward. And they basically argue uh, that what we're seeing, and again, this is very interesting. He says, in those places where you have multicultural settings, in the urban settings, where you have all these young people streaming into London or into New York and to San Francisco, because it's a, a more of a heterogeneous, multicultural setting, people vote against populism. But in those places, like the small towns or the northern towns, uh, where society is still relatively more homogeneous, in other words, where the organic ties still exist, 
they tend to vote for the deplorable populist. I don't know if you noticed, but one of the unstated values that comes up in this debate by identity politicians is they hate homogeneity. Have you noticed that? Whenever they use the word homogeneous, you know, it's if so facto a condemnation. Imagine a homogeneous community. So the argument is, is that heterogeneity or difference is by definition superior. It's kind of a moral. And if you, you know, it was really brought home to me uh, absolutely clearly. I don't know if I told you this story, but I used to live 15 years ago in a small village, not for very long, in Kent. I thought I'd try it out. And um, a couple of African guys and Afro-American Afri guys came who I know from before because they were interested in some research I did in Africa in a different life that I had in the past. And so they come to the village, they kind of look around, and this white woman that came with them says to me, you know, Frank, I feel very uncomfortable in this village. And I says, well, why do you feel uncomfortable? They says, well, it is very homogeneous, right? It is very homogeneous. So I look, I mean, this is a small village in the middle of Kent. You know, if, if I go to Botswana, right? <laughs> In, and visit a village there, I do not expect to see very many English faces, right? <laughs> I mean, that's not, you know, and just because I don't see people like myself in that Botswana village would not necessarily make me feel uncomfortable. But she didn't get it, you know, sort of, uh, she didn't really quite understand. But I, you could really see that heterogeneity uh, becomes ipso facto an important value. And I think the reason for that, I haven't got time to go into this, is that when you have heterogeneity and a multicultural setting, then by definition, there is more scope for identity politicians to manage and to, uh, and to administrate and to kind of you know, become the experts that tell us and, and, and preach to us as to how we should relate to one another. So you, you got that occurring. And basically what Englehart is really getting at is he's trying to explain, but because he's part of it, he really can't. Uh, he, is how, how it comes about, what part and parcel of this attempt to find a new way of being, having rejected the old, you ultimately have to opt for the sacralization of identity. Identity, at that point, becomes everything. And I think, you know, and this is a point that I think Ben was bringing out earlier on, but I think it's a really important point, which is, is that when you sacralize identity, you have to spoil other people's identity. Right? It, it, it's not the case that you just celebrate identity and they say, you know, even though they, they lie and they say we love all identities, they don't. Right? Because what you have uh, as you're celebrating some identity uh, is, is, is a spoiling of others. So when you have the feminine masculine counterposition, it's very, very clear that male identity is at the very least uh, morally inferior uh, or if not more than that. And you have the new language occurring where people's personality and per people's very, uh, very being is bound up with a, an identity that defines them. But these identities convey a moral condemnation. So for example, when people use the word white attitudes, you know, that's, you got white attitudes. It's not neutrals, and they don't say, oh, that's interesting. That's a white attitude, right? What that they mean is that white attitude is by definition somehow flawed, somehow prejudiced, somehow racist. I mean, there's a number of meanings that that, that 
that that conveys. Or when you use the word, one of my favorite words, which I, I kind of I identify as heteronormativity. Right, heteronormativity. The, the, the term heteronormativity doesn't say, oh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, heteronormativity is a very interesting neutral concept. It basically conveys within it an aspiration towards sexual small-mindedness, inability to sexually experiment, you know, living you know, according to the puritanical values of four or five centuries ago. Or another favorite expression that I, I suppose I would describe myself is, um, is toxic masculinity. Right? It's interesting because you, know, you, you might imagine that toxic is working as an adjective with masculinity. But actually, what they really mean is that all masculinity is toxic. I mean, that, you know, it's very rarely the case that you have you know, sort of uh, great masculinity. You know, <laughs> you know, these are the masculinity that we celebrate. You know, it's, uh, the very term toxic masculinity serves as, a, as an incitement to emasculating people. I mean, that's the, that's the good man, the one that has got no masculine features left. Now, these ideals uh, of culture obviously come about from the universities. Universities is the place where people talk about culture the most. That's where a, a lot of the language, that's where a lot of the ideas uh, kind of come about. Uh, and I think it's important to say that although they are very influential, these ideals, they haven't yet become coherent, systematic, as I, I was suggesting to you yesterday. I think that the post-material, anti-traditional, cosmopolitan, anti-humanist sentiments have not yet cohered into a system of value. They work as a clandestine ideology, which is very, very rarely spelled out. And I think that uh, the way that it works is that you know, sort of you have uh, kind of symbolic distinctions being experimented with, but they haven't yet cohered into uh, a powerful force. So in many respects, you know, if I want to describe somebody as very desirable, somebody as really wonderful from an identity politics point of view, if I want to say that you are great, what do I call you? What's the name that I use? Well, the name they use is she or he is really aware. You have you heard that expression, they're aware? It's an interesting concept because awareness, I did a Google Engram search when it kind of began to be used because people were not described as being aware, you know, sort of uh, in the 18th, 19th century or most of the 20th century. It came as a, comes in at a certain point when this kind of cultural war takes off. Being aware uh, is, by definition, a limited description in the sense that you don't know what they're aware about. They're just aware. Right? What are they aware about? There isn't, it's very rarely the case that you spell, you spell that they are aware of danger or they are aware of the importance of national sovereignty. You know, just being aware leaves open, it leaves in the air you know, what it is that you're about. And it's a, it's a wonderfully important concept. And of course, awareness as a category that you describe people with also serves the function, also serves the function of creating not only two classes of people, those who are and those who aren't, but also provides some individuals with the authority, with the professional and cultural authority 
to determine what awareness means in this particular case. And I think we now find that there are you know, millions of these institutions you know, where professionals tell you and, and you, and you get training in awareness. I don't know if you ever, any of you had the misfortune to go to one of these uh, sensitivity training or awareness or diversity training, you know, kind of, I, I don't want to make any jokes about it because they are dark that I could, I could make, but it is, it is done by people who, who, barely, who can barely spell the word aware, right? <laughs> I mean, they really struggle to get the W in there instead of the we, you know, sort of, and, and they are the ones that are, you know, teaching you these kind of different forms of sensitivity. Imagine going to a, a class on consent. Right? Imagine these schmucks uh, explaining to you what consent means, whereas we all know, if you have any philosophical training, that consent is not something that you do in accordance to an administrative rule. Consent comes through the interaction <coughs> at that particular moment. So basically, uh, what you've got are uh, sort of norms being created, uh, like awareness, that, that both try to sort of give a positive uh, sort of set of values to this new culture. But in the very course of doing that, they are continually also breeding suspicion towards anybody that isn't really part and parcel of that. Uh, I think that's what the symbolic disti distinctions between people do. I have to say, again, I haven't got time to do that, but that when you make these symbolic distinctions between two types of people, it is as violent and it is as, 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 as potentially dangerous as when you make distinctions between good and bad races, you know, as when you make distinctions between good people and bad people. I mean, these lifestyle distinctions that are being drawn uh, through the new kind of morality that's being created are no less, are, are no less uh, intolerant than the old ones. So basically, the, the really difficult question becomes, and this is something I would like you to think about and maybe struggle with, not just today, but for some time to come, the, the really difficult question to answer is how is it that in spite of the absence of doctrinal clarity, in spite of the absence of a system of thought, somehow what's called correct thinking emerges. There's a kind of correct thinking that we all know exists in every aspect of our life. When you go to a dinner party in Islington, you know exactly what is correct and what is incorrect. I know all the time because my wife kicks me under the table as I'm about to open my mouth to, to basically prevent me from saying certain things. That's because she knows what the correct thinking is. And we do that in work and everywhere else. And where does that correct thinking come from? It's a very difficult uh, uh, question to answer because unlike other forms of correct thinking, which are, are bounded or, or, or based on a certain system of ideas, a religion or a doctrine, this one doesn't seem to have that. It's, it's very, very uh, sort of uh, clandestine. And it seems to me that uh, the way to understand where this correct uh, thinking comes from is to understand that what we have is a situation where, in a sense, the animosity and the resentment that the new kind of cultural values create and the attempt to uh, sort of kind of harness that resentment into a, a kind of a, a, a way of life does create a certain negative form of ideology, which more or less uh, becomes uh, quite central 
uh, to people's lives. I think that the way in which uh, correct thinking, uh, the way that kind of comes about, and the reason why it is so plausible, is because underpinning this anti-humanist uh, element that's, in, that's contained within the cultural turn is this continuous demand to police and to control humanity. I think the misanthropic dynamic that is thrown into the mix in this situation where human beings are seen as having these series of psychological deficits, which result in all kinds of oppressive behavior, continually invite some way of controlling that, some way of, 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 of rewarding those people who are able to overcome those deficits by being aware, whilst at the same time punishing those people who are, who are not able to uh, sort of make that kind of a change. And I think that the correct thinking, uh, in a sense, which exists principally on the linguistic plane, it's very much about the language and the words that, that, that you are kind of using, is something that is still rather, rather unstable in the way that it kind of works itself out. Um, so basically, the conclusion that I've, I've, I've kind of come to is that correct thinking comes about through the marriage of the therapeutic underpinnings of the cultural turn with the technocratic and social engineering policies that emanate from that. And it is through the institutionalization of the social engineering and the technocratic ambitions that occur that correct thinking succeeds in being so powerful. I think the best example that I can think of, which is quite unprecedented, uh, in the rapidity with which it's kind of spread into the popular consciousness is gender-neutral trans ideology. And when you think about it, that a conservative government in, in, in this country, at least a conservative government in name, can so rapidly create a situation where it does become the, the truth, the incontrovertible truth, where people you know, sort of are, are so ready to at least sections of society become so ready to embrace it, where a lot of parents boast about the fact that, yes, my child you know, does not have a gender identity at the moment because I'm preparing them for any eventuality. When that kind of shift can occur so fast, you can really see how correct thinking and, uh, becomes uh, a possibility with this heady mixture of, of a therapeutic imagination being enforced through a, a, a governance that is committed to social engineering and to technocratic solutions. You've been listening to a lecture from Professor Frank Ferredi entitled The Cultural Turn. This episode brings us to the conclusion of our series The Culture Wars Then and Now. If you've missed any, then I'd urge you to dig back through the podcasts that were released over the last four months. Don't forget that if you want to explore any of the lecture topics in more depth, then do check out the additional readings that are listed in the accompanying notes to the podcasts. And to make sure that you don't miss an episode in the future, subscribe to Ideas Matter via the likes of iTunes, Spotify or Podcast Addict. The Academy Short Residential School will be back in the summer of 2020. Then, across the course of a weekend, a series of talks will explore the exhaustion of political language. For more details, 
please visit our website www.theboi.co.uk forward slash academy 2020 and do register your interest there. It means that we'll send you full information regarding the programme as it becomes available in early 2020. The Ideas Matter podcast will be back with a new series of lectures recorded at our residential school for under-25s, Living Freedom. Join us in January to explore key historical ideas and take a look at contemporary debates as they relate to the past, present and future of freedom. Finally, thanks to Will Nestor Sherman who edited this podcast series.